Thanks for joining us here at New Song Church, where we are helping people to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you have any questions at all or just want to learn more about us as a church, you can check us out online at mynsc.org. It's the best way to stay connected with us throughout your week. And now, check out this week's sermon. Good morning. My name is Dan, and my wonderful wife, Deb, is sitting right over there. And uh, we've been attending New Song since almost a year now, since uh, later in the summer of last year. And uh, I just want to let you know that it is a privilege to be a part of a church that God, where God is doing things like he's doing here at New Song. It is our privilege to be here. And uh, since we've only been here less than a year, it's really my privilege to be standing here today, kind of be kind of pinch hitting for Pastor Justin as he's on vacation. And so I really appreciate that opportunity. But today I just kind of want to jump in by answering the old cliche question, what's in a name? I mean, does the name of a person really make any difference? Because like another cliche says, a rose by any other name is still a rose, right? I mean, you can either call it a rose, or you can call it a skunkweed, or you can call it anything you want, but it's still a rose. It doesn't change what it is. So the question is, does a person's name really matter? Does it really make any difference as to who they are? Now, my dad would have said, absolutely, unreservedly, yes, it makes a huge difference because my dad thought that his name had tremendous significance, not only what he was named, but how he came about getting that name, especially compared to one of his older brothers, whose name was Harry Richard Nicholas Pierce. His older brother had three given names, which is a little bit unusual to the, the two that we usually get. But uh, to my dad, that meant that his parents gave tremendous thought as to what they wanted to name their son and, and put a lot of planning and had a lot of hopes for their son, and that was actually true. Uh, when their second son was born, they, they wanted him to be named after an uncle whose name was Harry, and Harry was the most accomplished person in the family. Harry was the only one in the family who had ever gone to university and Harry earned his doctor's degree in medicine and afterwards established a successful medical practice. And so they wanted their son to follow in Harry's footsteps and do something significant and meaningful in life. So they, they named him Harry. They named him Richard after King Richard the Lionhearted because they wanted their son to be a leader. They wanted their son to go through life with, uh, with courage and be, to be brave and to, to have an impact on the world. So they named him Richard. He was born on Christmas Day, and they thought that was significant and it needed to be remembered. So they named him Nicholas after St. Nick. And so he was Harry Richard Nicholas Pierce. In contrast, when my dad came along, they named him Jim. One name, three letters. It wasn't James. It was just Jim, which was indicative of the fact that uh, by the time my dad came, came along, his twin sister was born three minutes before he was, and then he came along, and they were number 15 and 16 children born into that family, and 16, my dad, was the very last one. And truthfully, by the time... 
my dad and his sister came along, his, his parents were, well, they were tired. <laughs> and they were tired of, of thinking about what would be meaningful for these children. And they, they were tired of the planning. They were tired of the hoping. In fact, dad was born in 1932, right in the middle of the Great Depression. And his mom and dad were already poor before the depression began. And you know what that depression did to, fo- to poor families. They weren't surviving very well. So really their only hope for these twins were, was that they would survive. And so they didn't put a lot of thought into much of anything else. In fact, their names were, were basically an afterthought. The way my grandmother told the story, she was in the hospital, and after she gave birth to these twins, the nurse was attending her, and the nurse asked, well, what do you want to name these children? And my grandmother was, was kind of like, oh, yeah, I, I guess I got to come up with names for them. You know, I think she had used up every name that she could think of after, you know, 14, and now here are two more. And uh, she, she turned to the nurse and said, well, what's your name? And the nurse said, my name is Jane. She said, that'll do for the girl. (laughs) And the nurse said, well, what do you want to name the boy? And she kind of thought and shrugged and was having difficulty coming up with anything. And the nurse said, well, my my husband's name is Jim. There you go. (laughs) And so that's how my dad got his name. One name, three letters. And so to my dad... Many names indicated that a person was of great value. Many names indicated that a person was significant. Many names indicated that a person was planned and that he should be here. And that was very important. And that was actually true in biblical times when people not only had given names when they were born, and I'm sure their parents thought and planned and came up with names that would be meaningful for their kids, but in their culture, as the, the child grew and be, be, grew into adulthood and their personalities and their temperaments started to show and the qualities that were inside started to show on the outside, they oftentimes received a new name that described their greatest quality or their greatest personality trait, or maybe even a greatest accomplishment, they got a new name that actually described who they were from the inside out. And so it was to people in that culture that God came along and introduced himself. He said, hello, my name is, and he didn't just say, my name is God. He didn't just say, my name is one name, three letters, No, God came along and said, my name is, and then he listed at least 23 different names. As we read through the Bible, God has at least 23 different names, depending on how you count. Some theologians say that God is given up to 200 different names in the Bible. So if God introduced himself and said, hello, my name is on the name tag, he would need a lot of space. All of those names. So the question is, why did God have so many names? Because his names describe his character. His names describe his attributes, and his attributes and his nature is so vast and so big and so awesome that it just, it just can't be described in one name with three letters. It can't be described in two names or even ten names. It takes at least 23 for us to start to get an idea of the greatness of our God and who he is. 
And so it's, it's important for us to understand those names of God because they all indicate just how great he is and, and even more than that, how we can know him and relate to him. You see, when we use God's name to, to call out to him, we're not just using a handle. You know, you might as well just say, hey, you, if it's just a name that's a handle. No, God says, I want you to call out to me in a way that describes, and you're claiming who I am, and you are inviting me into your life so that we can have a relationship, and I want you to talk to me and address me by my name, just like the people did throughout the Bible when God introduced himself. They were in different situations, and God said, I can handle that situation better than you can. I, I want to walk you through that situation, so, so here's who I am who can do that. And so today, we need to start to learn how to, when we talk to God, actually talking to him by name and get to know him on a first name and second name and 23rd name basis. Well, obviously, we're a little bit limited in time today, so we're not going to be able to cover all 23 or maybe even 200 of those names. So today, I'm just going to kind of reach into the hat, just pull out one of those meaningful names of God, and kind of use it as an example, as a lesson today to teach us how to communicate with God and how to know him by name and how to draw from his names the way people did in the Bible, the way David did. I love what David said in Psalm 124 verse 8. David got this whole thing. He said, our help is in the name of the Lord. Now, David didn't just say, our help is in the Lord. Now, it is. Our help is in God. It is. But it, our, our, we get help when we understand who God is, what his name describes, and when we use that name in relationship with him, and we call to him by name, by character. Then, then that's helpful for us. King David's son Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 18:10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, like a fortress that protects the righteous run into it and are safe. We are protected by knowing and using God's name. And we can trust in that. That's what Psalm 33:21 says. In, in him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. It's not just trusting in God as a title, but we trust in his names. And that's how it works. And so the main idea of today's message is that we need to know God on that first and second, 23rd name basis. But how do we do that? Today, we are going to just use that example of one of his names. So let's get started by letting God introduce himself to us as he introduced himself years and years ago. God comes along to us and says, hello, my name is God Almighty. Or we would say, my name is God All-Powerful. That is God's name. He wants us to know him by that name. He is God Almighty, which might seem just a little bit intimidating to us. I mean, if a person comes along to us and it introduces himself and says, hey, I am John All-Powerful, 
You know, that's what we do when we want to intimidate somebody and get them to back off. But that's totally the opposite of what God was doing and what he wanted when he introduced himself to us. He doesn't want us to be intimidated and back away. No, he wants us to be invited and come closer. And that's why he says, I am God all-powerful. I am so much more powerful than you. So when you are walking in a dangerous situation, I want you to come closer to me because I am powerful enough to protect you. I am powerful enough to help you. If you were walking in a major city in downtown, in a downtown area that was gang infested and was a dangerous place to be and where people are commonly robbed and murdered and, and you were in that place, you would want somebody who was big and powerful to walk with you. And the more dangerous it got, guess what? The closer you're going to be to that person because they can protect you. And that's why God was inviting us by this name. I am God all-powerful. Helps us to understand that when we understand the Hebrew for this name. This is not a Hebrew lesson, but it helps us. The Hebrew is El Shaddai. It's a compound name that helps us to understand that he isn't just named God. He is God, and he is God in a much bigger and more powerful and expanded way than our limited concept of him. And that's what El Shaddai is all about. It starts with the, with, the, with the title of God, El, or Elohim. That's the most common title in the Old Testament, used 5,270 times. And it starts in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the, the heavens and the earth. the earth. Elohim literally means the strong one. God was strong enough to create the heavens and the earth. And here in this name, it tells us that the strong one is Shaddai. Shaddai means to, be, to have a big and powerful visage. You know, there, there are some people that you just take one look at them and you, you know that they are strong just by the way they look. I mean, you don't have to wait for them to lift anything. You don't have to wait for them to crush anything or anybody. You can just see their six foot five, very muscular, 295 pound frame, and you go, whoa, that guy is strong. And that's Shaddai. When they applied Shaddai to a piece of real estate, that was called a mountain. Big, powerful, imposing, strong. And when you applied Shaddai to a person, you would say that is a mountain of a man. Just has a powerful visage. And so when God comes along and introduces himself as God Almighty, He's basically, basically saying the strong one wants to show himself as strong, demonstrate and give every evidence that he is powerful. Why does he want to do that? So that we can know his power, so that we can know it more than just here, so that we can know it here, and so we can know it here as we walk through life. The powerful one, the all-powerful one is with us, and we know that. And so there's three ways we can start implementing that today. First of all, God wants you to know his power and how massive and how great and how awesome his power is. 
And the reason he wants us to know that is because we have a tendency to shrink God down in our minds and make him closer to what we are. We have this tendency to, to over and over again, even after walking with God for years, we still want to create God into, in our image. And we, you know, we, we know God is bigger than us and better than us, but we still kind of see him fitting into our mold. And God needs to remind us that he is nothing like us, especially when it comes to this thing called power. Because we need power, because we don't have a whole lot of power. We don't have a whole lot of strength. No matter what we think of ourselves, we really don't have much. So we need power. You know, God doesn't need power because he is power. He's the source of it. He's the creator of it. He is power. We use power, whereas God generates power. We draw from power. We siphon off a resource of power. God is power, so he's never diminished in power. So he's the one who who gives it out and distributes it to other people who need it so they can experience it. And that's why God introduces himself as God Almighty. Which brings us to three facts or traits that God wants us to know in relational ways. Again, this is about relationship. This is about as we walk with God and we talk to him and we, we, we address him by his names that mean something. So three traits of God that he wants us to know in those ways. Number one, he wants us to know here and here, that he has the strength to do anything. He has the strength to do anything. We need that reminder, just like Jeremiah. Jeremiah, prophet of God, walked with God for years, saw God do a lot of amazing and powerful things, but Jeremiah still had to be reminded, and that's what came to his mind when he wrote verse uh, 17 of Jeremiah chapter 32. He addresses God, sovereign Lord, You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too hard for you. What he was saying is, God, if you are are powerful enough to, to create the entire universe that is so vast, so huge, our minds cannot comprehend it and we could not possibly even measure it. And if you were powerful enough to, to create all of the galaxies that are in that universe, billions of them, so many of them, we can't come up with a number that's that big. And every one of those galaxies is comprised of so many stars that, that we can't comprehend that kind of a number. And every one of those stars has more power than billions of times the nuclear weapons that we could pop possibly build on this in in this earth. And Jeremiah is saying, God, if you are powerful enough to just speak the command and all of that poof came into existence, then nothing, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for God. He has the strength to do anything. And notice the way Jeremiah addressed him. Sovereign Lord. 
He, he has the, the authority to do anything. He has the strength to do everything, the authority to, to do anything. He has absolute free reign to use his limitless power and might to do anything he wants to do. He doesn't have to ask anybody's permission. He doesn't need anybody's permission. He can do whatever he wants to do. Even things that in our minds, we might think that even for the strong one, it's too hard to do. Which is why we doubt that God sometimes can do the impossible. He has the ability to do the impossible. But we need to know that name because sometimes the 18 inches from here to here is a hard road for this name to travel. Sometimes it seems that that God, the one who has the strength to do anything, the authority to do everything, the ability to do impossible things, it seems like that God is hiding from us. I mean, if he really has that kind of power, why isn't he doing this? If he really has that kind uh, of strength, why doesn't he step in and fix that? Why doesn't he answer the, the, the prayer that I've been asking and praying for for years? If he's really that powerful, why doesn't he intervene? And so... At best, we sometimes think that he must either be hiding or at worst, maybe he's not even there at all. And those were the very raw and real thoughts of the master illusionist Jim Monroe as he tells his story. Let's watch him listen. I remember the first moment when I became completely blown away and intrigued with the idea of being a magician. That was the moment that I knew that I could actually be good at this. It is the most fun thing in the world to me. I tend to like questions a lot more than answers. And what a magic trick does is it forces you into a place of questioning and it pulls the rug of reality out from underneath you to where you're literally left in a place where you don't know what is happening. As a magician, you're very skeptical and you realize that most of what's going on behind the scenes is fake or false. The idea of an all-powerful God seems incredibly silly. And when I talk to people that would go to church, I can remember thinking that they were just falling for a simple magic trick. It's like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain controlling everything. grown up understanding how to make people believe something was real when it was really not. I am a master of phoniness. I'm a, I'm a charlatan by craft. But I began to ask myself the big God question. I said, God, if you are real, then I need you to bring me back behind the curtain. I need you to show me how it works. And I need you to make this so real to me that I cannot ignore it.
will never forget the day this man walks into my room and he said, Mr. Monroe, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have, you have cancer. I said, what? And he looked at me, he said, Mr. Monroe, he said, we cannot cure you of your disease. My wife and I were, we were in a bad place. God, where are you? I guess you aren't that great. I had been married for five years. I had just a three-year-old girl and a two-year-old little boy. And I needed, I needed more time with my family. I needed more time. And that is exactly when God wants us to call out to him as God Almighty. That's when he wants us to address him as El Shaddai. When our faith is weak, when doubts dominate our thinking, when, when our determination crashes and the promises that we made to God, or I'm going to get victory over this temptation and, and, we, and I'm not going to go back there anymore. I'm not going to go back into that lifestyle. Then we crash and burn again. He wants us to call out to him as God Almighty when our, our efforts fail and, and we've dropped the ball and we can't even muster the strength to try to pick it up again. And we're disillusioned and we doubt. That is exactly how Abram was feeling after waiting 24 years for God to keep his promise that Abram and his wife Sarai would, would have kids. A promise that seemed improbable when it was made because when God made that promise to Abram, they had already been married for like 40 years, four decades of trying for children, and nothing had happened for four decades. And by the time God came along and made the promise, Abram was 75 years old. Sarai was 65 years old. And so it didn't seem probable that anything was going to change. But Abram decided, let's just trust God. Let's believe that he's going to do this thing. And so a year after God made the promise, nothing happened. And the next year, nothing happened. The third year, nothing happened. The 10th year, nothing happened. 24 years of nothing happening went by. And what was improbable at first now seemed absolutely impossible. In fact, absolutely ridiculous. And God, no doubt, seemed like a phony. So what do you do when God seems that way to you? God says it's during those times that I want you to trust me as almighty God and trust my heart as almighty God because that name is not really just about his muscle, what he can do. It's about his heart, what he wants to do with all of that power. And his, his heart is, is wanting to do something that's a benefit to us, not just to him. Which brings us to the first time he, he wore that name tag and it introduced himself to Abram in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. If you have a Bible, turn to that. It's important that you, you're looking at that because I want you to, to mark some things that are important as we go through that. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to project the words on the screen here today. 
In Genesis 17, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. This was the first time God introduced himself as God Almighty, God All-Powerful. He said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you. That's an important word. Circle the word covenant if you have a pencil. We're going to come back to that. And it's going to be repeated. In fact, if we read the whole chapter, it would be, you would circle it nine times in this chapter. So obviously it's important. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. Now, why did Abram fall face down? If we, if we forwarded to verse 17, it would tell us why. He was laughing so hard he couldn't stand up anymore. He's going, God, are you, are you kidding me? I mean, when you first made this promise, I was 75 years old. Now I'm 99 years old and my wife is 89 years old. And you're telling us we're going to have children. <laughs> That's absolutely ridiculous, God. But God said, and, and this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. God is now playing the name change thing on Abram. By the way, Abram means exalted father. Imagine wearing that name tag around for four decades when you couldn't have children. Exalted father. God says, you're not, you're not going to be called exalted father anymore. Now you're going to be called Abraham, which means the father of many. <laughs> you're not just going to have one child, the father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. This passage basically tells us two things about God's heart. That is, his heart is so selfless and that he uses his mighty power not to do just what he needs to do, not to do things for himself. That's what we would do with almighty power. You know, that's Bruce Almighty. That's not God Almighty. God says, I have almighty power, but my heart wants to, to, to use it to benefit other people and to do things that people cannot do for themselves. I want to do what is helplessly impossible for you. So the question is, what was helplessly impossible for Abram? And we read that passage and we say, well, of course, the, the, the biggest thing that was impossible for Abram was having children. But you know what? That wasn't the number one can't in his life. That wasn't the biggest thing that was impossible for him. God pointed out the biggest thing when he introduced himself. Let's go back to verse 1. He says, I am God Almighty, and this is the thing that you cannot do that I want to do for you. Walk before me and be blameless. By the way, any blameless people in the room today? Does the word mean perfect? I am not perfect. I, my wife can just write sheets of information about that fact. I am not blameless. You are not blameless. Abram was not blameless. But God said, you need to walk before. In order to walk in front of me in my presence, you've got to be blameless because I'm blameless. I'm holy, and I can't accept people who, who are not holy. 
And sinful people, therefore, it is impossible for sinful people to enter into the presence of God without being vaporized. So God uses his almighty power and his authority to make a way for us to join him, to be joined to him, to to let us behind the curtain that separates us from him and to let us know him in the closest of relationships. And that's why he used the word covenant. That's why he used the word covenant. The covenant is a marriage term. Covenant describes the the two becoming one. And God says, that's what I want with you. I don't want to just have a distance relationship. I don't want to be separate entities. I'm over here, you're over here. And sometimes we get a little bit close to each other. No, he says, I want the two of us to become one. I want to be part of your life and you be part of my life. I want to be part of your existence and you be part of my existence. So we are blended together as one even though you're a sinful human being. So how can that possibly happen? God says, by using his unlimited completeness to enable us to be blameless, to be without blemish, which is the same word that was used to describe the lambs that were used to redeem God's people from judgment in the Passover, in the Exodus. Remember that story? God's people were in Egypt. They were oppressed. The Egyptians were rejecting God. They, didn't, they, they doubted that God existed. They were stubborn people. And God said, I'm going to judge sinful, stubborn people with, with death. I'm going to bring the death angel. But for people who believe who I am and want to be delivered from that death, you need to take a lamb. And you need to slaughter it. And Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, describes the lamb. It says, the lamb you choose must be year-old males without defect, without defect. Same word, same Hebrew word, translated blameless. And so they would take this lamb without defect. They would cut its throat. They would take the blood, put it on the doorposts of their house, and the blood of the lamb would cover them, and the death angel would pass them over, and judgment would not come. They would be forgiven. And 1,500 years later, as thousands of lambs were being bled out to commemorate that event, Jesus was going through the Passover feast with his disciples, and he held out a cup of wine, and suddenly he changed the liturgy from a Passover liturgy to a marriage liturgy. And he said, this represents the blood of a new covenant marriage kind of relationship that I want to have with you, which would only be possible through my blood, the Lamb of God's blood to take away the sins of of the world. His perfect blood drained from his sinless human body that would end his, his blameless life. And Jesus said, I want to do this for you in place of you, in my life in place of yours. Which brings us to the amazing life-giving truth that Jim Monroe came to understand when God took him behind the curtain and introduced himself to him. Let's watch the rest of the story. The cancer doctor looked at me and said, Mr. Monroe, he said, we cannot cure you of your disease. There is something, however, that we would like to try. 
It's called a bone marrow transplant. The problem with your body is that your white blood cells are making bad copies of bad copies. Your body is deceiving itself. It's playing a trick on itself. So what we need to do is we need to completely destroy your system. And what we're hoping to do is we're hoping to find someone in the world whose DNA matches yours close enough to grow a brand new immune system, a brand new blood system from scratch. We're gonna substitute someone else's perfect blood on your behalf so that you can live again. I was thinking to myself, man, my time is running out. I am dying of cancer. It's been hard to deal with right now. Peyton is three years old and Gavin is two years old. My two babies, should this take my life early, I love you. They began the most vicious concoction of chemo, the goal of which was not just to destroy the cancer in my body, but was literally to destroy me. It was hell. It was a slow death. I really am scared. I'm really trying not to be fearful, but I am fearful. I'm trying to be strong for my wife and for my, for my family, but uh, I'm pretty scared. We are waiting to hear from the National Bone Marrow Donor Program, seven million people currently registered on the database. And there was one perfect match for me, just one. It was a 19-year-old female. They said, Mr. Monroe, your bone marrow transplant is scheduled for April 23rd. You're gonna get a brand new birthday. They said, you are gonna be like a baby inside the womb all over again. The nurses celebrate your new birth in the hospital. And I had heard that terminology before too, somewhere at the churches that I had attended. But literally, I was gonna be born anew. And then I'll never forget, on April 23rd, they brought this bag of blood into my room and everyone was hoping in that moment that my body would receive that new life, that new blood. I sit here today, 100% completely cancer free. And when they look at my blood today, they see a 19 year old female. They see her, they see XX chromosome. I'm reminded of a verse in Galatians 2. It says, uh, it's no longer I who live, but it's someone else who lives on the inside of me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith. John 17, 3, it says, this is eternal life, knowing you, God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I'm fully convinced of the claims of Jesus as a skeptical person and as an illusionist. I know that the God of the universe has brought me back behind the curtain just like I asked him to. Cancer was how he did it through my life. And there's a spiritual cancer that's eating us away on the inside. And we're all longing, we're all begging 
for someone to step in and to save us from that condition. And that is exactly what Jesus, Almighty God in the flesh, offered to use his almighty nature to replace our death with his perfect life. He's offering us a relationship with him. And he invites us to receive God's love by name, to receive his selfless, sacrificial agape, because that's who God is. Because the one who can do anything wants to give us the things that we cannot do for ourselves. He wants to give us all that he is, everything we need. And he invites us to know him by name and by experience and by application, by accepting his mighty arrangement for us to join him. So let's respond to that invitation. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. Let's just think about our relationship with the creator of the universe, with almighty God. Maybe you're here today and, and you, you, you've understood maybe for the first time that God did for all of us what we could not do for ourselves. God wiped away our sin and made us so that we could blamelessly walk into his presence by accepting Jesus Christ and his substitute payment for, for our, our sin. And maybe for the very first time you want to say, yes, I accept I receive that arrangement that Almighty God made and only He could make so my sins could be forgiven and I could be blameless before Him. Is your desire today to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so we can pray for you? Just raise your hand and say, I want to begin that relationship with Almighty God. And maybe you're here today and say, well, I've begun that relationship. Maybe I did. I began that relationship a long time ago. I understood that. But there, there are still so many things in my life that I want to do, and I just can't seem to do them. I want victory over that temptation, but I just can't seem to get victory. You know what? God can. He is almighty. He's powerful enough to be victorious over the, that sin. He's almighty. He's powerful enough to be victorious over that failure. He's almighty and powerful enough to give you victory in every part of your life if we just walk with him and we, we call out to him by that name and we let him join us with his power. So let's do that. Let's start that today. Let's, let's address him. Let's call him by name. Almighty God, I want to walk with you. I want to walk close to you. I want to be in you. I want you, I want you to, to demonstrate yourself as powerful in my life. I want you to be victorious over my sin. I want you to be victorious over my temptation. I want you to be more powerful than the world and the flesh and the devil that always wants to push me into its mold. But God, today I will walk with you. You will be my almighty God, and I will let you be my power source in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As a church, it's our honor to play a small part in what God is doing through your life, and we would love to continue on that journey. To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, all you have to do is go to mynsc.org connect. 
Thank you to all of you who consistently give, serve, and pray. You are the ones that God is using to truly make a difference in our community as we live out our mission of leading people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. We hope you tune in next week. 